Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I'm looking forward to getting vaccinated next month. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I'm looking forward to getting vaccinated sometime this year. Professional development requires ongoing dialogue and reflection. So lean in as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Imperial Cast Cuvée from the Boulevard Brewing Company. I had to look up what cuvée meant. Um, but it's a reference to a blend of the best stuff, which uh, makes me very excited for this beer. I love the smell. It smells, it's reminiscent of Brandyland. It's got some uh, spiciness to it that makes me happy. And as I recall, there are some, there are some rye barrel aged um, portions to this blend also, which are among my favorites. And man, it, it pours like used motor oil, which is also an excellent sign. Yeah. So what are we doing today, Querent? Gamification offers a fresh take on teaching design that offers increased engagement and improved learning. However, research to date has been unclear about what components of gamification work. We read a meta-analysis that searches for which pieces of gamification can benefit your students. Later, we turn to a study of how research is interpreted by teachers. They identify which measures are popular and which ones are effective. As teachers, we can recognize our preference so we can manage our bias as we read. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read The Gamification of Learning, a Meta-Analysis. This was written by uh, Michael Saylor and Lisa Homner uh, and published in Educational Psychology Review in 2020. So the reason I cued this paper probably won't shock anybody who listened to last month's episode, uh, but we had a chance to read a paper that was looking at how cognitive pathways maybe didn't have a physical manifestation of some of our conceptions of motivation, and specifically how the way our memory pathways do work might be set up to uh, really lean into some of the perceived benefits of gamification. And our conversation last month didn't really have a chance to get very far into what gamification is um, and how it's effective or maybe not effective. And so I wanted to get really deep into the idea of what gamification is and how well it works. So uh, conveniently, there was a recent meta-analysis looking at that exact question. So let's uh, let's do that. Let's talk about what gamification is before we uh, talk about any measurements or anything like that. For those who may not be uh, hobbyist gamers themselves, um, you might hear gamification and think that it's, you know, getting, uh, you know, like, what was it? Was it Number Munchers? Was that the game? Carmen Sandiego for Geography, all these games that that I played growing up. Oregon Trail, right? Learning about the world through playing games. Uh, that is not what gamification is. That's not what gamification is. It is not about employing education software or board games for the purposes of learning. That's not what it is. Yeah. And actually, so I went into this, I admit, um, somewhat, uh, 
antagonistic or you know confrontational because there are some pieces of that that I think are not as productive as other approaches to education. But the authors laid out really early the difference between game-based learning and gamification, which is something that you were pointing out and pushing me to think more about last month. And this, these authors really reinforce that in a robust way. And so when we're thinking about gamification, there were some, some game elements, some things that... Uh, the word comes from using elements that are in games and applying them in an educational setting. Uh, but it's not really about board games. It's not about chits. It's not about dice. Um, it's about some of the ways that games work and making that possible in a classroom. Uh, and it's pretty different, pretty different. And actually things that I can get, I can get on board with. Well, first of all, what they did was boring. They looked at a bunch of studies, threw out ones that weren't helpful, and then did stats on the remaining to find out what parts of gamification were actually useful. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I that I found I found interesting because I like boring things. Is uh, their review of the existing research? Um, there's a, a lot of flawed research out there related to gamification, um, and that was like a big piece of their justification for this work. Was um, you know there's there's X number of studies, uh, but a lot of the studies have methodological flaws or overly small sample sizes. Um, some of the past work has publication bias. And even a previous uh, a previous meta analysis um, had um, a lot of limitations that made it not particularly useful. And so uh, I thought it was interesting because folks who are using gamification elements or are considering implementing gamification elements, myself included, if I was going to go looking for research to to guide that decision, uh, there's a lot of stuff out there that we need to use with caution much more than I would have imagined. So we're kind of looking at this as, you know, pretty reliable meta-analysis of what's out there. Uh, and so let's cut to the chase. Um, they decided to look at three outcomes, cognitive outcomes, the knowledge that the students have, uh, behavioral outcomes, the skills that the students have, and motivational outcomes. How do Basically, what is their attitude about the learning that they've done and orientation toward the subject and things of that nature about themselves in relation to the subject? So knowledge skills and attitude that's essentially what they assessed and at the end of the day there is a small but real boost to all three of those with uh gamification a lot of the benefits that they were seeing looking across these studies were related to behavioral benefits and so the 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 differences in in improvement for specifically cognitive um, cognitive measures, but also for uh, for motivational measures were were reduced, although still statistically significant as they defined it here. Um, and so a lot of the a lot of the improvement was for behavior. But then in their discussion, they laid out that 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 even that gain um, may have been an artifact of the way these studies measured them. So um, you know, as whenever there's a you know early subject being discussed such as gamification further study is required uh, but they've you know given a good start i want to say that this is my takeaways which may be different from yours um i did a, i did a fair amount of skipping of some of the middle statistical analysis section so if what i walk away with I, i'm wrong about clear me out on this but uh the three sections that i found as a as a practitioner where i'm thinking about shoulds for me and my future uh, had to do with the game components of game fiction uh competitive versus collaborative interactions and the length of time that the game occurs those were the three things that i was considering because if i walk away if i understand this correctly 
Uh, a rich game fiction improves behavioral outcomes, so is skill improvement. Competitive and collaborative interactions also uh, yield a benefit to skill improvement. Um, and having the game occur over uh, one month of time improves uh, motivational outcomes. So students' attitudes in relationship with, with the material. So those are the three. Those are the three things that I walked away with. Uh, what, 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 what do I need to talk about here? What do we need to revisit? What do we uh, need to I discuss? don't like two of those three. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's do it. Let's do it. Although I admit I was also super pressed uh, or just distracted uh, this morning. And so I also I also jumped around uh, even more than I usually do to try and get through this. Um, because I, even the authors lay out what they saw was in their data, right? So we have to start with what we see in the measurements and then link that back to what's real, right? Like what, what do we actually, how does that manifest in the world? And so they spent a fair amount of time talking about how the behavioral measures are so much higher uh, because they're process measures. A lot of the studies that they classified as behavioral outcomes were really about process. So what are the students doing? Uh, so this connects back to like behaviorist approaches to the classroom. And so it really makes me, uh, and the authors brought it up and it resonates with me that they asked is, uh, are these game elements, are they really improving um, like meaningful aspects of how students engage in behavior or does it just make them more likely to do the things we ask them to do? Um, which I link back to like just the uh, surface level compliance, uh, especially in the midst of a study, like while they're being observed. Uh, and so I think that we really want to be cautious about um, if you're building a narrative or you're building, um, you know, this this fictional or, or non-fictional structure within which students are doing things, are we building all of that so we can drive a behavior so that I can have a really, really compelling and pungent piece of cheese on the button in my Skinner box? Or is this something that's really building um, a justification and a framework within which students can make meaningful decisions? Uh, because I'm, I'm going to argue that at the end of the day, our job is not to get them to do things as teachers. Right. Our job is to support their their growth, whether it be cognitive or motivational or behavioral. Uh, and so my job is not to get them all to do a thing, any one thing. Uh, and so in a lot of these measures, because these were process measures, we'd be cautious about what that means. I have a uh, I have a you know personal uh, project that I've done with kids in the past on and off again. I, ha I mean, it's not something I've been teaching for nine years. I haven't done it all nine years and I ha I haven't done it all the years that I taught gen bio i've done it maybe three years four years of the, of the time i've been teaching but it's a role-playing game where the kids are um special interest groups in a city attending a um a city council meeting where the city council is going to decide how to zone that land and different interest groups have to pitch a presentation to them to convince them how to zone that land and when i was reading this um, article, I, I basically connected everything back to that practice that I had to see what was, what, in what parts of gamification were represented, what were maybe beneficial, what I can possibly improve. So that's kind of where I took it. And so the first aspect, this game fiction idea, 
if game fiction is going to help improve behaviors, I did create a game fiction. It was a fictional town. It was a fictional bequeathal of land. It was fictional roles. Um, and, uh, you know, what was going to happen to the town? What was going to happen to the land? How would the citizens benefit? What would be the costs to the citizens? And so this fictional ideology of who you are in the town and what's going to happen to the town and what are the decisions going to be made, I leaned heavily into that. Uh, and uh, I suppose if I want... I, so the question is, what were the behaviors I was promoting with that fiction, that's the question that I have. What are the behaviors I was promoting with that fiction? Uh, I'm familiar with that project. I love the pro that project that you've done. I so I have no. I really love it. I want to do it. Frankly, um, I want to be a student in that classroom. But to just lay out some hypothetical comparisons is all of that narrative. I could in column A, I could set up all of that narrative as a justification for completing the paperwork to accept the the bequeathal of land and to execute the particular activities. And so I have a series of worksheets where I'm calculating the the square area and I'm calculating the energy transfer. And those might be like curricularly relevant details, but ultimately all of that fiction is just a justification for a pile of worksheets. And so my students are more likely to commit complete the worksheets because they have this fiction that's leading them to believe that it's more than what it is um, but should i be asking them to do worksheets in the first place and that is distinct from building a context and building a story within which they are they are authentic and autonomous decision makers and stakeholders within this fictional community which i know is more of what you what you were actually doing and so and what the researchers laid out in this paper was that the in the individual studies this is a meta analysis right so this was lots of different procedures in the individual studies they didn't have the resolution of observations to tell the difference and they were, I'm going to say, predicting or speculating that there's a chance that maybe both of them are happening. Uh, so I see. I see. Yeah. Using, you know, dressing up a fraction math worksheet with a story that you're going to kill the dragon when you've solved all the problems isn't a compelling addition to the problem-solving behaviors. But if they are actually constructing a persuasive uh, advocacy for a behavior for the sake of a town uh, that they themselves individually research, uh, I actually endorse those skills as part of the fiction. So so is it dressing or is the fiction integral to the, to the behaviors you want to grow? Yeah, building richness, building relevance. And so, but I think of some other examples, like I, in my head, I operationalize this as the NGSS storylines. Uh, because I think that a lot of those, you know, the case study information and the individual details are, they're not even a fiction, right? They're pulled from real stories. But in this case, I think it fits their their definition of all that fiction provides the context within which we are analyzing these details, these ideas. Um, or I would argue that even probably most project-based learning fits into this to some degree of the project. You have the, the relevant, the authors even described it. They even talked about anchoring, right? Which is some vocabulary that is mirrored in these NGSS storylines or other project-based um, materials. You anchor it in something that is real and has, has subtlety and has context. So that students can use all that material for decision-making, which is different from, I have this persuasive story that is an opiate to convince me to do the one thing you want me to do. Right. 
Uh, yeah, and as you were saying that, I was thinking about project-based learning and game fiction, and that the, the game fiction of project-based learning is reality, which is, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so seems like that would be superior in terms of, like, anchoring students' uh, 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 motivations to do things, that that in the real world there are, you know, uh, regions that ha deal with um, malnutrition issues uh, based on your understanding of, you know, ecology and uh, macromolecules, uh, what solutions can we present to help meet this need? That, you know, I don't have to create a fictional nation that is suffering from malnutrition to propose that those behaviors, those problem-solving behaviors. Yeah, the second one. I mean, we, we've talked about game fiction. The second issue is um, competition and collaborative interactions with students. And uh, I learned some things about competition and that they had divided it into two subcategories of competition. Destructive competition, which I have been default – like w before today, if you said competition, my intrinsic um, – biased perspective of competition was always destructive competition pretty pretty in group out group um use the competition to uh judge one to be superior and separate the superior from the inferior i just have a bad taste with all of it and they're like yeah that's bad don't do it uh but there was a second category of competition yeah the competitive and collaborative competition that was more about uh we are all in a competition so that we can all succeed and so we are all you know engaged in this work you know you think of it like we're all running a cross country meet and i want to run my fastest and i want to help you run your fastest and we're all going to run as fast as we can together and so the that's a you know a, a constructive attitude around this competition and i was particularly uh, i'm going to say sensitive to this one because i have a competitive streak to me and i have for for a long long time i credit that with my mother shannon ralph i've got it from her uh, and so I just, I really love to compete in my life. There've been times where I've been insensitive to the d difference between healthy competition or constructive versus destructive competition. And the authors even laid out that, uh, a lot of that is even independent from the activity structure that's really sensitive to the culture and the context within which you're doing activities. And so you can't necessarily construct competition that will always be collaborative competition, but there's a social dynamic that we have to be aware of and that we have to construct together. And it's not all, you know, of course there are incentive structures that predispose us to one or the other, but there's an element that's independent from the, from the activity structure itself. So the, as you said, Destructive competition is bad, okay. And that was true in their data. Not really all that shocking. And so collaborative competitive was showed a showed a meaningful showed a significant increase in their data. But I was um, it gave me pause that there wasn't a dedicated collaboration only thread. I I I thought there was. I thought there was, and it was not significant. Was that what their control was? I, I saw it most times just referenced as... So when they coded for social interactions, they coded the papers as... Uh, they had four categories. Competitive, collaborative, competitive collaborative, and none. Uh, I, I missed the collaborative only, so I don't know anything about that. And they, it's, it's, because, it's because it wasn't significantly different. Like, it, it, it might... None. It, yeah. Might as well have been none. Um, and 
and so for me, I was sitting there thinking, okay, if collab, if if competitive collaborative is the one that is the like, if you're going to do one, do that one. Okay, what does that look like? So I, I was imagining real life situation. So if I'm working at NASA and we hear that there's some terrible impending disaster up in space and we got to problem solve it, okay, uh, you four, you're one problem solving team, you four are another, you're four another, you four another, we've got four hours, find a solution, come back to me. Um, At the end of that, if one of those groups has a working solution, the other three groups also win. Like everybody wins if someone is successful. Yeah, your job is to ideate and to differentiate yourselves so you can maximize your exposure to success. Yeah. Right. And so that to me is the the collaborative, competitive, uh, I think, ideal model. And so in a classroom, you know, we have these we if I if I think back and, and go back to compare to my um my activity in that model, the culture that I had set up, they were being collaborative within their groups and they were being competitive against each other in the groups. But I think that I created some constructs that promoted a more destructive attitude between the competitors than afterwards. Instead of, instead of saying, and this is the one that wins and here are all the benefits from the town. And so as a group, we, 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 we gain these benefits. I said, and this group wins and they get this in-class benefit and they get these special privileges and the rest of you don't. And here's what you could have done to be better. And uh, I can do better in how I culturally tend to and present the nature of the greater uh, collaboration. I can I can do better to de-emphasize the destructive uh, components of that activity. So the third one was time that you brought up about uh, you know, having um, implementation of these characteristics for longer than a month. Uh, and that's the one that I like just fine, but really only because that not only, but I feel like that easily files under the umbrella of commit to the things you do, be consistent in doing them and do them a long time. And so this is no, this is no different of if you're going to implement these elements, it can't be a one and done. It can't be a, uh, you know, we have this context. All right. That was yesterday. Back to worksheets. Like if you're going to do these things, you get the real benefit from them by committing to doing them and then integrating them into your teaching in your classroom for the long haul. Uh, this uh, reminded me of a second activity that I did last year that sadly got interrupted. Uh, it sadly got interrupted by the um, quarantines, but where I, and I stole this from Darian Ogden, shout out to Darian Ogden, um, that uh, I w- my classes made little critters. One class made um, one class made uh, uh, caterpillars and another class made um, oh gosh, I don't even remember what it was, but they made two little critters that they hid in the room and then other classes were hunting them. And I didn't contextualize this at all. I said, here are the rules of the game. You get to make your bugs every week. The number of bugs that survive get to reproduce. Uh, You get to keep track of which ones survive so you can keep track of which ones you can make. And uh, the hunters have rules for their population. They were a different class doing a different thing. And so these classes would be competing with each other without even seeing each other. They just see the bugs in the room. And we, we would do one update every week, one update every week, one day, one class period, one update every week. Uh, and it, we did it for two months. And I hadn't talked about natural selection at all yet. And 
I know that there were like three or four kids that independently just explained the the whole process. And that had been happening for two and a half months before the quarantines hit, before I even got to the payoff. And so committing to that for a longer period of time, uh, I definitely saw um, – I, 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 you know, this is anecdotal, but I saw cognitive um, growth – well, and so there's a piece that you said it was it was cognitive. These results being non-significant is in a meta-analysis. So that is not the same thing as it can't work or even that it doesn't work conceptually. But the authors even talk to a substantial extent about, you know, the quality of implementation really matters. I think in a lot of in a lot of like the pieces of what they were measuring. So really high quality implementation of some of these gamification elements, I think, do do improve student outcomes compared to instruction without the gamification elements. Um, it's just, we haven't measured them yet because it's still a relatively new, um, really, really new structure, at least from a scholarship standpoint. So I think that's awesome. I think, it, I think what you saw was real. Um, you know, be, be a reliable, be a reliable figure in your classroom. But when there are global pandemics, sometimes we can't follow through on things. And that just, that sucks, but is understandable. Make better mistakes. And so, for segment two, we read, How Should Educational Effects Be Communicated to Teachers? This was written by Uga Lorte Forg, Utna Sio, and Matthew Inglis. It was published in The Educational Researcher. Uh, it's an online only and will be out in the year 2021. Uh, I liked this paper. I thought, uh, one, I'll tell you one of the reasons why I like this paper. The last one was long and mathy and this one was short and clear. So this one could have been two graphs. Yeah. Like this one didn't need a single word. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, relevant, meaningful, useful, straightforward. Uh, thank you for an elegant piece of writing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so they did great. Yeah, which uh, and I I sympathize with the feeling of they did two studies in this paper, and so the amount of work that I'm sure went into like the participants and the data collection and the analysis to have it all boil down to something so elegant can be easy to mistake for uh, triviality, but it's not. Elegance is beauty, and you all did awesome. Yeah, don't judge a paper by its length, people. This is a nice read. So the the setup is these researchers are in the UK. And there's a lot of conversation about connecting research to teachers. There's a ton of researchers who put in their grants and in their publications that teachers are a target audience. The materials that they have out there, they want teachers to read and they want them to use in their classroom. However, we don't know very much about what it takes to make those papers actually useful for the teachers reading them. Uh, and in fact, there's a lot of cases where we suspect or where we know that the ways that this material is being presented is producing a misunderstanding or a perceived irrelevance of that work. And it's been poorly studied. So they're like, let's go study it. Uh, which is kind of um, brings us echoes to an episode we discussed um, a little bit ago. What was that one? Was that 45 yeah. Oh, no, 46. In episode of 46, we talked about the nature of how um, science 
and how it's consumed by the public. And in this case, it's very focused science. It's educational science. But the public, in this case, is practicing practicing teachers. And that the role of gatekeepers and science translators is getting muddied in the as 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 tech, technology and communication practices change. So, you know. The, the lines have blurred a little bit. So, you know, teachers need to be better readers of science and scientists need to be better translators of science. And so that's kind of what this is about. How can those doing the research help translate what they're saying so that teachers can more easily take reasonable actions based on the results of that research? There's a piece of what was in their first paragraph where they pushed back on a really common notion that I feel like I'm hearing in just my conversations broadly in education, where there's, you know, the common quip of we publish these academic articles and six people read them and none of them are teachers. And why are we bothering publishing these papers? And they're like, that's just not true. That's a falsehood. Uh, so they laid out at the beginning this, you know, there's a, there's a teaching and learning toolkit and there is a what works clearinghouse. The teaching and learning toolkit is a, like a UK focused, um, uh, resource and the What Works Clearinghouse is in the United States and it's it's operated by the U.S. Department of Education and in the U.K. two thirds of schools report consulting the Teaching and Learning Toolkit and in the United States the What Works Clearinghouse has thirty five thousand new users every month. That's more than six, ladies and gentlemen. So there are a lot of folks who want to be reading this research. So let's not so let's not mistake the fact that teachers don't want to be reading it. They are reading it. It's our job as researchers to make what they are reading useful. Yeah, cool. Uh, so let's get right to it. Um, this one really is, I mean, honestly, as a practitioner, as a teacher, um, there's a little bit of information in me in terms of shoulds, for me in terms of shoulds, in terms that when I'm reading education research, I should recognize that I am affected by the way the information is presented. So as a teacher, I need to be aware of that uh, so that I'm not either, I'm not intentionally or unintentionally biased by by how this paper is, is laid out. But really, this is a paper where the shoulds are for researchers. Yeah, I think you're right. And actually what in my notes, the should, I, I wrote it and circled it, was the takeaway for practitioners is exactly what you've said. So the uh, knowing how different measures are received can help us manage in ourselves. And I felt it in me. They gave some examples where I felt myself react the way that they described with those biases. They gave a medical example where, um, because this is really well studied in, in medical settings with uh, clinicians and with patients to know how different news is responded and reacted to as patients are making choices for um, like treatment. So they opt into or out of. So it's just, it's really thoroughly studied there. And so they know that if you say this treatment uh, reduces the incidence of X problem 50%, patients are like, cool, sign me up. Versus if they're like, hey, uh, this treatment takes this negative outcome from two in a thousand to one in a thousand, patients are like, I don't want that. What a waste. And those are the exact same outcomes. Like that's like the exact same impact. But the way that it gets framed heavily influences uh, the choices that patients are making. And so doctors uh, or, or physicians have to weigh that in how they frame it to their patients based on their judgment for the patient's best interests. And so that's the same thing is happening here is um, there are there are a handful of common metrics. Uh, the first one that's really, and we've even discussed it on this show, is what uh, I put in air quotes as months of progress. 
So we have these research measures that are often esoteric and not something that's relevant to anybody outside of that research discipline. And so to translate it into a, an equivalent months of progress for students. And that one, teachers love. Teachers love to read that one. Uh, they believe that um, outcomes are more effective and they believe that it's a more accessible measure. And so uh, the problem with that is a theoretical one. And the authors cite some, some theoretical um, publications saying, yeah, that's really tractable, but that puts us into this trap of believing that all learners learn at the same rate. And that's a really problematic assumption. We have got to get away from that. So if there's a number one takeaway for researchers and for teachers who read researchers using that measure, you got to say, yeah, that feels good in my brain, but I have to reject that assumption. I have to reject that assumption because not only is it problematic, but it also marginalizes a lot of our students who have already been marginalized by other processes. So gosh, our brains like it. We have to push back on it. And, and this is me getting up on a little soapbox a little bit. Um, uh, there's there's a lot there's this persistent culture and education about how like moving at the rate of the presenter the more the presenter can get through the more the the students are learning and that's a fallacy but it's so steeped in our culture that time becomes this precious value and and yardstick and it's 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 the it becomes the currency of learning. Time becomes the currency of learning. Like, well, if you spent this time going over this material, then they have learned. You've, you've given them time with the material. That's learning. And, and that's not how brains work. So that's, but it doesn't matter. That, that persistent narrative is strong. And so this metric, months of progress, feels like you are being successful in this, um, poorly constructed, uh, specious measurement of learning. There's a line early on in their paper in their introduction section that they said something that I don't know if it was just a line that they're like, whatever, that's, a, that's just another couple of words and a few thousand. But I highlighted it and I even like sat and stared at it for a minute because it was so profoundly connected to the way I think about working with teachers, to the papers you and I have published and just what we say on this podcast most months. Uh, and so I'm going to read it to you verbatim. It says they, meaning teachers, they may prioritize other factors such as how the metrics relate to their objectives. And that teachers are time stressed. Like there are never enough hours in the day. There are never enough days in the month. And there are never enough months in the year. And so reframing your outcome to months of progress for teachers who are almost always short on months. Well, of course, of course, like that's, I need months. So that feels really good to me. Uh, and so uh, that's useful, but it's problematic. So we have to push again. We have to, we have to avoid that as teachers say like, okay, that feels good, but I need to reframe this because it's problematic. And there are other ways to think about that. Uh, so there are some other measures. Uh, the the Cohen's measures is what I'm going to say. Um, Cohen's D, Cohen's U3, and there are more. Uh, and like I, ladies and gentlemen, I'm I'm getting a degree in measurement. And even I'm like, wait, which one was that again? Uh, and so while Cohen's D is a good measure, and in fact, I even knew in myself when I was reading it, and they got to Cohen's U3, and I was like, that's a, that's the one. That's a good one. That's that's right. That's clear. That's like statistically accurate. I love it. Oh God, everybody's going to hate it, aren't they? And they do. Everyone hates it. So 
Like from a research standpoint, we've got a feel in ourselves. What it is is a curse of knowing. You you become familiar with the metrics you choose. And so this feels precise. And we mistakenly believe if I if I use this precise measure I love and I just explain it with the perfect words that are in my head, everyone else can fit that into their schema. And you miss what's important to other folks and they don't have your same schema. And so it's this obtuse and accessible measure that everyone hates. So yeah, I, I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of it. And I basically, when I was reading this paper, comparing the five metrics they selected, I basically ignored that one. Like they said something about it. I was like, I don't have any reference to understand what that means. Which means that if I had read any other paper and they had used those metrics, I would have been like, what does this mean, Ralph? I, I'm going to ignore this unless you explain to me what it means. Uh, which, you know, uh, they did discuss at the end that researchers – you know, use the ones you want, but then translate them into the ones that teachers uh, need. Yeah. And so, so I've got to take you to the, the journey that I went on to the should that I think is relevant to researchers, but also relevant, uh, like teachers could translate this to the, to, for themselves. And there's a, what they called the threshold measure. They uh, were framing what that threshold measure was and how they operationalized it. And they're like, so this you've got this like this this degree of competence that you want people to achieve. And so then you just talk about how many people achieved that degree of competence. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's a mastery structure. That's that's my jam right there. Like, cool. I'm going to keep track of that one. And I put it all in my notes. I get down to the bottom in the graphs. That one's amazing. That one works really well. And in their graphs, not only is it perceived as effective, but it's also relevant to our goals as teachers because teachers want their students to be competent at stuff. So it connects to what's relevant and it's tractable. And so that can be like percentage of students who reach a passing threshold, or that can be percentage of students who achieve, you know, a top marks in a standards based in a standards based grading environment, or it can just be an, uh, an assignment of mastery if you're using a, just a, um, you know, a pass or fail sort of a situation. But their threshold definition is effective, nearly at, perceived as effective as months of, of um, progress, very nearly and is accessible to teachers. And so what I took away from this was, yeah, forget months of progress. I hated that one already. Feels great. But also get away from the obscure, the obtuse, the overly statistical, which feels good to me, but I've got to recognize that I'm not the same as uh, practicing classroom teachers. I'm not everybody. Threshold measures are the ones that are useful to your audience and can be uh, statistically valid in their implementation. My should threshold measures. Uh, yeah, that that seems fair to me. How many? How many? How many got a B? It, I mean, since the threshold is variable, you can define it. How many students got a, an eighty percent or or whatever competency? However, that that particular metric defined itself. Yeah. The one more thing that I thought was interesting in their graphs was uh, when in the perceived effectiveness of implementation, uh, a lot of these excuse me, a lot of these measures were perceived as more or less equivalent. You know, the months of progress was slightly better, but a lot of the other measures, even the statistically, you know, esoteric ones were like, ah, these are all about the same, except the raw test score was perceived way lower than all the others, which surprised me, honestly, because that one was, was tractable. Like just, just tell them the results. Just, just tell them what the students got on the test. But if you do that, you're going to be biasing your teacher readers to perceive that the interventions were less effective than if you chose literally any other measure. And that, uh, that surprised me a little bit. That was actionable. 
that doesn't surprise me. Um, I think that there is a, a, I think that we, and I think I'm thinking of high school practitioners, but I'm, I dare I say it extends to other educational level levels kind of live in a state of dissonance regarding education in terms of our job is to teach them to do well on tests external to like external tests or internal tests our job is to teach them to test but not really because we're not philosophically here to teach to tests we're here to help them become better people but that's how we're measuring it and so i think that there's this bitter taste in the mouths of teachers even those that like really really sink in to test prep education I think even they have a bitter taste in their mouth about what they're doing and how it's being measured and like, what am I here for and the validity of the tests and, and inconsistencies about it. And so that in general, when you say here are test results, like external test results, we approach whatever comes next with a dispat, uh, di like, I don't want to say dispassion, a disappointment. We, whatever comes next is, is got this veil of, it's what I'm dealing with, but it's not really why I'm a teacher pessimism. Um, and, and that are, you know, we talked about, you know, uh, there was, I don't know, maybe a year ago now, we talked about a, a study about having like a 5% effect on graduation rates being just this insanely powerful effect. Uh, and that, you know, if we get a one, one number raise, in an average ACT score, we feel like things are incredible, like that's an incredible power. But then when you look at it, that it was 23 and now it's 24. So do we actually care? We don't actually care. We care about time. So months sounds awesome. But we don't care uh, about the numbers. Our hearts as teachers do not care care about those numbers and so when you say here are the test scores which is the things you are the most familiar with we're like yeah we're the most familiar with it and we also hate them since we're on the topic how was the beer the beer is complex there is a lot in there. Um, it's very, very high APV. And so there's a lot of alcohol. I feel affected by the beer, even as much as I've drank thus far. Um, but it's, it's very, it's very thick, but because it's blended, I, I even still feel a little bit overwhelmed. Like it's very sweet. Um, there's notes of the different casks in there, but I, I am ill-equipped to fully describe it. There's just so much in there. Uh, 13.8 APV to be exact, which is amongst the highest uh, we've done. I don't know what the record is, although I feel like we should, I should know. I should, as beers are, I should know what the record is. So I'm going to do some research and, and get that on, on, on record. Uh, but uh, it's, it's super high APV. And as we know, the higher the alcohol content, it's generally leans towards sweetness, but that is not, and there are, the thing is, is that this taste changes like the front taste, the mid taste, the back taste, the aftertaste, it you go on a journey when you take a sip of this and swallow it. And there are sections of that taste that are very sweet, but there are also sections of that taste that are very bitter uh, and a little bit acidic. And and it it it's a pretty like you said, there's a lot there. It's pretty complex. Um, 
I think the strongest thing for me is that it's most reminiscent to me of Brandyland with that spicy and acidic, uh, but sweet um, associations. That's what I, it's the closest to that. Yeah. So knowing what I read about the description and hearing just you talk a little more, I think I'm unlocking because a a portion of this blend is Madeira um, wine casks. And then another portion is the rye. And I think I can pick that out of like the second and third things I taste is some of the sweetness of the Madeira and then the, um, the bite of the whiskey casks. I think that I catch it in there. It's all in there. It's good. I took the first sip and I was like, I don't know how on earth I'm going to drink two of these. There's so much in there. Like it's like drinking gravel. Uh, it got, it's gotten easier. And, and, and you're right. To be fair, we're basically at the end of the show and I have half a, I have half a glass left and that a never more. happens. Yeah. That never happens. I usually, um, I usually have saved like a, uh, two sips at the bottom of the cup and it's just been sitting there for some time just so that I have something to drink and then comment on. But that's not the case. I have quite a bit of this left and uh, that is unusual for these beers. So I would not categorize it as easy drinking. No, But I mean, it's an imperial stout, so you should not have that misconception <laughs> coming in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay then. We appreciate you tuning in. This has been another month in an incredibly, uh, an incredible year. You know, it's incredible for so many reasons. Uh, I appreciate everything that all of you are doing to support our students and to get through what we're doing. Um, we've got the spring semester coming up. So let us know if there's something we can read or you have input or comments uh, that we can contribute to the conversation because we are here for you and this is better together. So we will see you next month. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, Discuss research and struggle well.